Amen. Amen. As always, I want to encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word today as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 27. You knew it was coming. Some of you thought about inviting friends and decided next week's the time to start. Can understand that. But I think the Lord has a pretty clear word for us today. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David, was, uh, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. He said, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you're going to say to him, uh, your servant Uriah is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. 
strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning, church. How you doing? Good. If you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11, that's where we're going to be this morning. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a great joy to have you with us. If you're here new and visiting or if you've been around in July and you're like, who am I? Uh, I would love to meet you. I'm going to be hanging out by the windows uh, to the right side of the lobby after the service. If you're new, would love to meet you and just connect and hear your story. And it is a joy, like I said, to have you with us. We are smack dab in the middle of a uh, verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Samuel. And so we find ourselves today in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the title of the message this morning is The Fall of David. The Fall of David. If you were to think about it, what do you think is the most well-known sin ever committed? You have a guess? Stab at it? Adam and Eve? Probably up there? What else? Most well-known sin ever committed? Judas? It's a good one. You got to imagine at some point, first of all, most of these conversations are happening from stories of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? For how people view the Bible, and it's a bunch of goody-two-shoes people who read the Bible, and it's a bunch of moral stories, and yet every one of the most well-known sins that has been shouted out is from the Bible. And I would have to imagine that if we were to take a top five list of the most well-known sins that have ever been committed, David's sin in chapter 11 would have to be in there, correct? And it's interesting because you and I, (laughs) when we die, we want our sin to die with us. Right? We're all down to be heroes, but I'm not sure we want our whole life story or one of our most colossal failures recorded in sacred writ to be passed down for, am I right on that? Come on, somebody back me up. Like that's not, I mean, we're like, I'll be a hero, but if the hero part means you fall on your face so that the Bible can show there's only one hero, are you okay with that? That's David's story. The Bible doesn't flatter its heroes Like I said, likely to show that there's ultimately one hero, isn't there? But the Lord has a purpose for recording the falls of some of the great heroes in the scriptures. And Thomas Brooks is a well-known Puritan. If you're a fan of the Puritans, he wrote a book called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. And he said this, quote, there are but two main ends of God recording the falls of his saints. Two main ends. He says, here's why this is here. Number one, it's a warning to well-meaning people like you and me. Hearing today and putting yourself in the shoes of David, seeing it, assessing it, what went down, what happened, how do I what? Not do the same thing. So that anyone who stands ought to take heed lest he fall. 
Brooke said that is 100% why a story like this exists. It's a warning for us. But here's the second thing, and I find this interesting. He said the other reason this is here is for hope. Hope to keep some of us from fainting or sinking under the burden of your own sins to such a level that you become so woefully despondent, you are stuck in the muck and the mire of your sin. Now, when he says this ought to give hope, he's not meaning that the, uh, we should excuse our sin or uh, compare your sin to David. And it's, it's not as bad as what David did and therefore creates some sort of a view of leniency about your sin. No, no, no. But rather, this is to remind us that the same flesh that existed in David is the same flesh that exists in us. God help us see that today. That you and I go the same way David went, but by the grace of God. Not because you're a more moral person. You have everything capable in your flesh to do the exact same thing. You have a common weakness and significant weakness at that, that David faced. And so with that being said, we need the big idea for the passage. As it stands here and as it stands in scripture, we need this for today. Namely this, that David's fall is both a warning and a reminder, church, that we, along with David, need the saving work of the sinless son of David, Jesus. Here it is. It couldn't be more clear. We need Jesus. David is not enough. David is a sinner who stands in the same boat that we live in. We are in desperate need of the sinless son of David, the one who would come, who would be a substitute to to have the wrath of God deserving our sins poured out on him so that we could be forgiven of our sins, not by anything we do, but by faith in the finished work of Jesus in our place. We need Jesus desperately, and that's going to become apparent today. What holds chapters 10 to 12 together today is obviously that Israel is still at war with Ammon, right? That's what holds the story together, this war story, except... Of course, what causes chapter 11 to take place is that while Israel is all at war, tell me who isn't at war. Okay, so everyone's at war except for David, and that creates the problem and the issue for which we get chapter 11. Where everyone is on the battlefield, but the focus turns from the battlefield to the bedroom. And there's a great deal of restraint in this passage. There's a great deal of restraint. The writer seems to almost be silent about all other feelings going on in this text. You know how many words Bathsheba gets in the whole passage? Two words. Two words. That's it. I'm pregnant. You know how many words Uriah gets? One verse. Verse 11. The author is intentionally not drawing you into the feelings of everyone else so as to isolate the action of David. This is the focus of this passage. This is what is on display in chapter 11. And you have to remember that it is a stark contrast to the David of chapters 9 and 10. Is it not? If you remember back to chapter 9 and chapter 10, David was the man of God at the peak of his career, the man who could do no wrong. And what was he doing? He was a godlike figure in a sense, extending hesed love to both 
the house of Saul, as well as Hesed love to the nations in chapter 10, correct? And that one who was at the peak and pinnacle, who was extending Hesed love, now has this moment of tremendous fall. And instead of Hesed love, extends this unholy lust towards one who wasn't his. And therefore, the picture placed before us is David as a fallen servant. And what's important about this is for us to understand in the greater redemptive context of the scriptures, not even in David's hands, this is what we're supposed to conclude, not even in David's hands are God's redemptive kingdom plans safe. Like we held out hope, like David was gonna be the one. David was gonna be one, he was gonna get it right, promise was gonna go through him, he was gonna be this hero, and this is clear, man, all of our heroes have but feet of clay. And the kingdom plans of God are not even safe in David's hands. You think of the Davidic covenant, which acted as the furthering of God's redemptive plan. And then not far after that was bestowed upon David, that there was a new fall, kind of like in the garden almost. Right here in chapter 11, like Adam, David sinned in relation to a woman. Like Adam, David's sin was adultery. Adam's sin was spiritual adultery. David's sin was literal adultery. And watch the flip of the gospel here as you think about the son of David, the sinless son of David, Jesus, versus what actually happens with David today. Here's the gospel today. Ready? The opposite of the gospel. David commits sin and then sacrifices the many to save himself. Here's the gospel. Jesus commits no sin and then sacrifices himself to save the many. This is the difference. And so we need David's fall to be a warning and a reminder that we, along with David, need, need, you need the saving work of the sinless, I'll add it, substitute. The sinless substitutionary work of the son of David, his name is Jesus, you need that today. And so, in the words of Thomas Brooks, what I want to do is see if we can't uncover warnings application that we can glean from this passage today. And so as we've kind of looked at the redemptive context, let's see what we can't pull out of this. I'm going to divide it up into three sections. A sensual compromise, a slimy cover-up, and a straightforward conclusion. And I want to see if there aren't some things that we can glean. You think there's some things we can glean today? <laughs> There's a lot we can glean today. The person who walks out of here and goes, I don't get it. I'm praying for you. I already was praying for you. I was already praying for you. God, please don't let the hard-hearted walk out confused as to how they could possibly be at risk of some of this stuff. So here's the first thing, essential compromise. This is no surprise. Essential compromise. How does it start? Well, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, here's the thing, that word go out there in verse one was a phrase used to describe one's military duties. Springtime is wartime. This is the time men go out. When the time came for the kings to go out to battle, David was on the couch. Correct? Verse 2, David arose from his couch. There's debates about this and whether or not 
Did David really have to be in battle? I think the answer is he didn't necessarily have to be in battle. If he was holding to the holiness code of Israelites, warriors, he could have stayed in Jerusalem, and that could have been okay if he had held to the commitments that he would have held to, and we're going to see Uriah hold to, but he doesn't. But you need to see that something was different based on what the text is saying. The kings go out to battle. David remains at Jerusalem in verse 1. They had ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, it says, and here's what verse 2 tells us. It happened late one afternoon. That's like the start of a story, isn't it? They're sitting by the fire. So it happened late one afternoon, and then the story goes. When David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Usually in the Bible, when the Bible wants to say beautiful, you get the significance of that and just the word beautiful. When you get really beautiful, you get like, and guys have like a seeing thing, right? And there's a beauty thing going on. What I find so interesting about the way this starts is there seems to be, and I, I alliterated it from you because I'm a pastor and that's how I graduated seminary. And so um, there's a threefold process you see here. There's leisure leaving leaving you to linger, and it gives room to lust. And so leisure can be a gift of God, but if it's exploited and you have nothing to do all the time, you end up lingering too long in your leisure. You're bored. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. And so you have time to sit on your roof and stare. And guess what? You don't just stop, you don't stop at the stare. You have time to do whatever you want with those thoughts, correct? Don't, don't admit it, okay? Better if you just hear me say it. Um, you have all the imagination, you have all the ability, you have all the time, you have no responsibility in this moment, you linger in it, and that gives way to a significant and profound opportunity for lust. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Temptation, regarding that. He said, quote, that our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire or lust, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. It happens like that. And yet we'll see that it doesn't just happen like that. He continues, at that moment, God is quite unreal to us, he says. In that moment, where the lust kicks in, where the desire kicks in, God is quite unreal to us. At that moment, he says, Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. That's what happens. <laughs> that lust acts like a blinder. Your general reasoning faculties are overridden in that moment. Your ability to make any spiritual assessment is compromised. Spurgeon said it like this in his message about David. He said, sin blinds the eyes stultifies the conscience. How about that word? It means to dull the conscience. Stultifies the conscience and stupefies the entire spiritual nature of David in this moment. This is what sin does. And what I find so interesting about this is that despite the fact that the lust had taken over, we're going to see how the reasoning faculties are overridden, how the spiritual perceptions of the, of the um, psyche were overridden in this moment. But he's not without warning. 
there's always these warnings that, that seem to be in play. If you go back through some sort of area of compromise into sin, almost always, or at least frequently, there is a moment where something was there, but you were so, what, blinded that you couldn't even see the warning as it hits you right between the eyes. And I was thinking about it today. Maybe this message is a warning for some of you. Maybe there is someone in a place wanting to commit something. Desire is already given over to this wanting to fulfill it. And is it possible that this message is meant to hit you right upside the spiritual head to say whatever that is, confess it and repent? Here's why I say that, because verse 3, so he checks her out, um, and David sends and inquires about the woman And the one to whom he's saying this responds back, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, here's the warning sign he just sped right through as if it didn't exist. It would be the equivalent in our time of saying something like, hey, wait a minute, you're asking me to send for her? Isn't that Uriah's wife? You you see how that's a warning sign, right? Yeah, 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 whoa, 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 what was I thinking? I mean, I saw and I lingered and that wasn't, but, but now, right? And praise God if that was the end of the story. Good point. She's, and, and why is that unique? Well, because when you get an account of a person in scripture, you very infrequently get their connection to their spouse in the way someone describes them, right? So it's so-and-so, the son of, the grandfather is this, the, the, the grandmother is this, the, but very rarely do you hear about the spouse. And yet in verse three, you hear about the spouse was which wasn't typically included so it's a big warning sign going um the one you're calling me to send for isn't she taken so david sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her the irony is she'd been purifying herself from uncleanness which was in fulfillment to the ceremonial law of the old testament she is fulfilling the law and then to violate the law in just a second it's a there's tons of irony that's built into this so she's purifying herself she goes into david to who she was taken she came to him he lay with her she returned to her house the woman conceived she sent and told david and this is the only words you get i am pregnant This is like not good. Right? I mean, what a catastrophic collapse. What a huge fall from grace. You know what we typically like to do with falls from grace? We like to read about them and not think about how that might be us. I want to say a word really quick about a modern desire to redefine this situation as rape. Uh, I, one of the popular 21st century pushes within critical theory and uh, kind of, I'm calling in hermeneutics of intersectionality, really, really, really push for this to be rape, that David had raped Bathsheba, and they leverage the intersectional hermeneutic of power dynamics. I want to get to this for a little bit because it's prominent out in the broader Christian spheres. This intersectional hermeneutic of power dynamics ends up making this say, this text say, what I believe is more than it does. 
And a lot of times those who hold to the intersectional hermeneutic of power dynamics will then imply that the writer, nor modern readers, nor modern pastors are bold enough to just say it how it is about David. And so kind of push like, you, you don't do the text, it's, it's due diligence because you're not strong enough to say something about it. And the Bible authors aren't strong enough to say something about it, which I find a little bit humorous considering one of the most common and well-known stories of rape in the whole Bible literally occurs in two chapters. That's Amnon's rape of Tamar. The hermeneutics of intersectionality end up redefining rape and broaden it to be understood about an inequality of power. It's called the power rape. However it went down, because of the power discrepancy between David and Bathsheba, it's rape, period. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if she was trying to woo him or not. Do we see that in the text? It's not clear to me. Is it clear to you? But it doesn't matter. However it came together, it is a power rape. And then what happens is you get terms created like biblical rape is like the times where the Bible talks about it. Well, that's biblical rape. And then they'll go on to say that the Bible's definition doesn't apply to our modern context as they've expanded the definition. And so when you get to passages where you see it from the modern definition, we must read that definition back into the passage. Which is a classic issue of something called eisegesis over exegesis. Eisegesis is taking something you want to be in the Bible and try to read it into the text. You put it on the text exegesis is you draw what's there out of the text. It's a concern, not because I'm trying to protect David. David's an adulterer and a murderer no matter how you get out of this passage, right? At the least. Well, like, whoo, got out scot-free. I'm not sure that's the way it's going to fly. And I think we have it clear by the end. My point isn't to defend David at all. My point is simply to say that this is a dangerous road with a prevailing and powerful hermeneutic that has the potential to undermine the authority of Scripture as we go forward. And that's what my concern is. My concern isn't whether or not there's a power dynamic present in the story. Is there a power dynamic present? 100%. My concern is as a pastor, it's my responsibility not to go beyond what the Word actually says. So do we know and do we want to assume was Bathsheba just innocently there or was there something? Because, you know, hey, I know men use power to have sex, but isn't it true that sometimes women use sex to get, it's possible, right? But if we start reading into the text what's not there, we have a problem. Now, the account focuses primarily on David. Bathsheba is not mentioned in this account. This is about David, and this is about a dangerous, damning fall that David committed. And so I, I want to I just give you some, some application as we're looking at this passage. And, and really, we see the event in these first few verses, and I want to give you a few pieces of application. The first one is this. You are not too old or mature to be exempt from something like this. Let me just give you a sense for where David is. David is 50 years old. He has been on the throne for 20 years. He is known as a man of God. He is known as a composer of psalms. He is known as a mighty warrior and a triumphant king. David was in the prime, prime, prime of his life when this happened. You are not too old 
to be exempt. Oh, when I get to this age, that won't be my lot. It will be till the day you die, that potential is there. The second thing I want you to see is the slippery slope of significant success. We don't do with well with success. We want success. We believe that's the only way we see God is when he's giving us success. Even though if we were honest with ourselves, it's affliction that tends to draw us to the Lord most deeply. It's affliction that reminds us that we are not independent. It's affliction that has us throwing ourselves upon God for everything he is for us in Christ. It's success, and and it's hard to say that there were many more successful people than David, right? He's up there. In chapters 5 to 11, it's nothing but success here. Success, success, and what does it do? Success loosens your grasp on God because if you're gonna lay hold of the flesh, you have to let go of God at some point. Success leads to a self-indulgence. You're the winner. To the victor go the spoils. You deserve it. Look what you've done. Look what, because of you, Israel's so good, and you're not taking nearly what's yours. So what's a little bit here and there? And we've talked about this passage already, the Deuteronomy 17, God made very clear three things I want the king to watch out from. The multiplication of horses, the multiplication of wives, and the multiplication of money. Deuteronomy 17, right? And what did I note uh, to you along the way is that we were in chapter five, for example, and he's Again, winning, successful, all this stuff, and he's accumulating what along the way? Tell me. Wives along the way. So before we go, I can't believe someone like David would do that if I said, well, he's been accumulating multiple wives for a while. You're like, "Mm, no, I could see that. Right? Like the person, okay, I'm not even gonna give another example. So many sensitive things here. The lavish leisure, we already noted. But here's what I want to say about the lavish leisure. Some of our greatest falls don't usually come when we're busy with the right things, but when we're bored. Men, that's especially you. One of the best lines I ever heard was, men drive straighter with a load. You don't need 10 hobbies. You don't. I don't think you maybe even have at times in life for one hobby. But I don't want to be super legalistic about that. There's some seasons for hobbies for sure but you don't need a lot of time on your hands. Lavish leisure has not done men well. I'm not saying it's not a women's thing either to have lavish leisure. leisure. Lavish leisure is a problem. We can live, we live to have like this huge period in our life that's lavish leisure, right? We like work and work and work to have three decades if we could of lavish leisure. That's a problem. Don't retire in a lavish leisure sense. Just simply retire from your work so you can keep doing kingdom work in another setting. And I would just say lack of accountability. Who's going to talk to David? (laughs) He's the best at everything he does. Who's speaking into David's life? And by the way, everyone's drafting off his power, his coattails, all of that stuff. (laughs) This is a man who would be very, very difficult to speak into their life. Such a reputation. It all goes before him, all of that. So you got to watch for this thing. The slippery slope of significant success loosens your grasp on God, leads to self-indulgence, lavish leisure is a part, and a lack of accountability. All that is built in to potentially being part of this, but I wanna say something else too. I wanna say to you that David didn't suddenly fall. I kind of alluded to it a second ago. David didn't just, oops, suddenly fall. We've talked about this, but I I wanna get into this. No one suddenly just falls into sin. Sin encroaches imperceptibly and incrementally. 
That's why it's so annoying. Because it's so little, you can't see it. It just comes with the flow of your day. But it grows incrementally such that it builds upon itself. Sin is never content with you sinning once, just so you know. We talked about this in a podcast. Sin has a tyrannical desire. It doesn't want to take part. It wants to take over. God help us. It makes the little sins so dangerous because they go undetected. A whole bunch of, we've called them chinks in the armor before. But I will add this because I thought Thomas Brooks is brilliant. He said this, quote, let's get it out of our head that there are little sins. He said, truly, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. That's a good word. Stop saying they're little sins. They are in the sense that we can't see them. But we have to take them as serious as we would any major commission of sin. That'll help us. Sin's never at a stand. Psalm 1 has that progression. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers and there's stand in the way of sinners. Wicked, sinners, scoffers. It's a movement. So one of the things that you would do well to do as we kind of wrap up and we move to the next section here is to hate sin. <laughs> Loathe your sin. Hate it as Thomas Brooks said. Hate it as hell itself. Hate it with horror. You, you have to hate sin. You have to hate it such that the stench of it, that you're even around it, even near it. So most of us, we were drawn by our flesh and then we think we can kind of manage sin in our pride and so we just kind of hang around it. The only way you're going to conquer sin is if you don't give yourself an occasion to even be around sin. The answer wasn't to stay there and mark his territory and be like, I can look at that and I won't even do anything about it. That's not the win. The win is the minute you see anything that is perhaps tempting, you run the other way. You flee and run. You don't overestimate your strength, your ability. Loathe your sin. Make today the day on a good day that you hate your sin. Abhor what is evil, Romans 12 says. It never ends like this though, right? It, it, it always gets from bad to worse. It, it often goes from bad to worse. Because you lose your reasoning, you lose your spiritual perception, now you've engaged in something where you're hearing the effects, the consequences, I am pregnant, and that leads to the second component, which is a slimy cover-up. There is a serious cover-up going on here. And, and guys, when you commit sin, you're going to have one of two options. Every sin is an opportunity to go to one of two ways. Think of it like a fork. You've got two routes, two roads, they're the same every time. Number one, you can confess sin. It's not rocket science. Proverbs 28, 13 says, do that. Okay, it doesn't really say do that, but do that. Confess sin. Here's why. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do that. Harder option over and against our flesh, and especially when we lost our spiritual perception. Second thing, only two options. Confess your sin or you're covering up your sin. 
Which, by the way, when you make the call to cover up your sin, let me remind you, it's never your last sin. So you try to work through the maze of confusing everyone, including yourself, that what happened didn't really happen. Two options, you must choose. Two options today, you must choose. David has a choice, you have a choice. Today is the day to confess sin. You will receive mercy and grace from God. That's amazing. You confess your sin to God, that's how he'll receive you. How awesome is that? Or you'll, in your flesh, go the route of cover-up. That is what David chooses. He goes for option two. And now, what's his option? Here's his play, right? She's pregnant. What, What do I need to do? I need to get them to, I don't know, I probably said too much already to say earmuffs for kids, but I need to get them to sleep together. Because then... When she's pregnant and showing, and they had that moment when he wouldn't have otherwise because he was out at war, you could probably put two and two together and think that was probably our kid. Yeah? Everyone's looking at me a little bit awkward. It's okay. That makes sense, right? It's what he's going to try to do. The problem is he finds that to be very, very difficult to do with Uriah. Like, tries multiple times. And so if you can't control the guy in verses 6 to 13, you end up going for plan B, which is just kill him. And that's 14 to 25. That's literally everything that's going on. So what does he do? He sends for Uriah. And I love, when you're in cover-up mode, it's amazing how quick you go to fake it. Like, Christians are good at this, right? You commit egregious sin, but you can be like, I know, brother. And just kind of have that whole Christian shtick that we just so naturally know how to do. So he, he calls Uriah off the field, or, and Uriah comes in, and he's like, how is everybody? How are your souls? Is everyone okay? Sit down. Have a cup of coffee. How's the shalom of Joab? That's what he's saying. How's everyone's shalom, like deeply caring for them? What a pastoral heart David has. Or what a crock. I'm going with B. That is a crock. Everything okay? Oh, yeah, right, like you care. He said, you know what? Take a load off. Why don't you, verse 8, go down to your house and wash your feet? You know what go down to your house means? It means go down to your house and spend the night. You have earned it. You deserve it. You're a killer warrior, man. I want to bring you in for a night. Next morning, gets up, what happens? He's not sleeping with his wife. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. When David's like, hey, why'd you do that? Here's the next warning piece. Verse 3 is a warning. Verse 11 is a warning. Verse 11 should have shot like a a volts of, of convictional electricity through his spine. You know what I'm saying? Like, he should have been rattled by what Uriah says, because interestingly, the only true Israelite in the passage is a Hittite. Look at 11. You want to know why? Well, because the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My Lord, Joab and the servants are at war. How in the world could I go to my house, eat and drink and lie with my wife? And plus, it's for you. As you live and as your soul lives, I refuse to do it. That should have been like... 
You can see that, right? Like if your perception is there, it hits you with, oh my goodness, what have I, come on, what have I done? So he goes, next plan, let's just get him drunk. And I love what one commentator said. He said, you can put Uriah under the influence, but David could never get him under his influence. It's a good way to put it. Come over, big feast, get you drunk. And then it's like, perfect, he's drunk. He's going to like stumble back into his house and stuff's going to happen. And this is a win. And he stumbles out and he's like, whatever it is, I'm sleeping right here. And he just, you know, you can't even get him when he's drunk. He's like, no, this is my spot. And he just curls up with the servants. This is the story. You can't make this up. Pastor Scott didn't like it. It was PG-13. Okay, well, what do you want me to do? It's all here. He just refuses to do it. So then David goes, okay, kill him. And to quote Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, I, um, okay, kill him. Logic isn't morally neutral. You lose logic when morals go out the window. Just, just a thing. That's free. This is so jacked up, it's hard to even put this in words. He literally writes <laughs> the dude's death sentence and has him carry it to Joab to give it to Joab so Joab can read it and put him in the worst position on the battlefield so that he would surely die in the next battle. That's his next play. It's not working. I'll write a letter to Joab. I'll have him deal with it. And he sends it with Uriah to give it to Joab. Now, if we're in that place where we're like, I can't believe someone did that. Not me. Oh, no. You, friends. And me. Capable of that. So what happens? Joab listens, right? He goes, hey. Set your eye on the forefront, verse 15, in the hardest fighting, draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. It goes forward, it happens, men of the city come out, fight, some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah, I love it, the period, Uriah the Hittite also died. So then he's like, well, now when you go back and you tell this story, because the interesting thing is uh, Joab knew exactly how to talk to David. David didn't like in the past when his soldiers died unnecessarily. He had a huge, huge problem with that. So he goes, listen, in order to fulfill that, you're going to go back, you're going to tell David what happened, and if he gets on you for getting so close to the wall that people are shooting arrows at you, not smart from a military strategy, and he gets worked up a little bit, all you got to throw in there is, yeah, but Uriah's dead. So just have that in your back pocket in case the conversation goes the way you don't want it to go. That's basically what he's saying, right? He says, if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why'd you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech and goes back into a story? Did he not cast this millstone? All you got to say is your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also, Okay? Keep that in your back pocket. You're going to be good. So what does he do? He goes, he shares the story. Verses 22 to 24, they got an advantage on us, he says. They came against us. We drove them back. Some guys died. But Uriah's dead too. And then we get perhaps one of the most twisted parts of the entire 
account, which is verse 25, and it's David's soothing words, and they're so similar to the last verse and last part of verse 27. It's crazy. It's the opposite. He literally says, David says to the messenger, thus shall you uh, say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. He's taken a totally different response to this. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. But here's what the first part says. When he says, do not let this matter displease you, it literally is don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't let it be. So whatever guilt and shame you might feel, here's the guy who's committing sin going, you know what? You shouldn't feel bad about that. This is not a category you should feel bad about. There is no evil here, and I want you to understand that. Hey, people die. It's war. It's not been David's MO so far. But it sounds a lot like Romans 132, doesn't it? That the ones who commit these egregious sins know that they're an offense against God, but they not only do them, they encourage others to do them as well. It's this cover-up of sin and scheming and shame. And when you find yourself in such a, miss, a maze of lies, it just gets worse and worse until someone finally has the courage and audacity to look you in the face and say, you are that man. And in that moment, when that word comes from a strong brother or sister, the hope is that God would open the eyes of the sinner to see that conviction for what it is and to own it. Well, that person who needs confronting would be met by grace to get someone to say, you are that man. And then as David's trying to kind of beautify this, this don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, we see this straightforward conclusion from God. We see this straightforward conclusion from God. Th this is how sin is, right? Um, our, our, our day, it's crazy. Everything's changing so fast. What used to be evil is now good. Even needs not, you can't be neutral to it. You got to be supportive of it. You got to champion it. So, so they've taken David's play. Hey, don't you worry. It's not evil. Go on. It's okay. And they, we've like ramped that up on steroids. And sometimes what we need to pierce through the chaos of our day is to hear a clear word from God about how he feels about sin. So when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Such an interesting way to put that. The author deliberately referring to her as Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You don't get a sense for how she feels. She lamented, as would have been ceremonial to do. But when it was over, David sends, she's brought, becomes his wife. They bore a son, and the story is over. Well, except for this little zinger. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. It was evil. You get the whole story, and you get no pause ever to give a moral take on the story. Every step of it, God is silent. And yet what there's making clear to us is that while in every step God is silent in the story, he sees all of it. He sees it. So you can cover up. You can connive. You can convince yourself. 
and others of why whatever it is that you're walking in is not that big a deal. You can put lipstick all over the pig of your sin and God sees it for what it is. And the chapter comes to this abrupt end, but David is not left where next chapter is the day after. This misery that David now finds himself in, and he is in a world of misery, and we know that because he wrote psalms about this moment in his life, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. We know the misery of David's life, and this, I want you to know, goes on for many months before this comes out. Let me give you his verses. This is how he felt as he harbored this sin and kept it in. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, end quote. Sleepless nights, strength gone, sickness had, haunted memories, couldn't eat, no peace. And this goes on for many months until someone confronts this king and calls him to the mat in grace to repent of his sin. Because you can be sure of this, he who confesses and forsakes his sin will indeed obtain mercy from God. That is our hope. But that is next week's story. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you um, so clearly uh, leave us without a shadow of a doubt of what this is, Lord. This is evil in your eyes. This is displeasing to you. Father, we are all in that place of living lives of sin, full of sin, full of lusts, and desires that are contrary to you and your word as you've made it clear to us. And Father, most importantly, as David would confess, we have sinned against you, but we know this, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that we would cling to that promise that is most certainly ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name, amen.